2: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. It's your host, Katie Burke. And today on the show, I have the author of The Minnesota Duck Camps, 160 Years of History and Tradition, Steve Knudsen. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Katie. This book of yours its hefty. <laughs> we'll get more into it to begin with. But one thing I like to know beforehand is what was your introduction to the
1: outdoors and waterfowl, hunting? So I grew up uh, in West Central Minnesota in Ottertail County, and uh, that's about 25 miles from the North Dakota border. And I grew up on a farm, and uh, in Ottertail County, uh, we've we've got a thousand lakes. And uh, so I, when I was a kid, I would just walk from a pond, you know, or pothole to pothole uh, before I was old enough to drive, I guess. And I had a he borrowed 16 gauge single shot shotgun that as i remember it uh, sometimes when you pulled the trigger it would go off and sometimes it didn't but uh, that that's how i got my start and you know i would i would sometimes walk for miles i guess as a kid you know walking from one place to the next you know, i wasn't a very good shot in those days for sure so yeah, i didn't have the uh, the problem of carrying back a whole lot of ducks to begin with but uh, i grew up i grew up on a farm in uh, In a great area for duck hunting, and so that's that's how I got my start.
2: Yeah, did your dad hunt at all, or were you kind of just doing it on your own?
1: Yeah, my my dad did hunt, but uh, when I was sort of getting to that age, uh, because we were on a farm, and uh, in the fall, you know, anybody that was old enough to help, and at at that age, I wasn't quite probably that helpful, but uh, so I had time to go hunting, and my dad didn't, so I started duck hunting. Uh, mostly by myself, and then I had uh, a lot of friends from school and stuff that that were interested in duck hunting, and so we got together. And once we had our driver's license, uh, then we then we were really on the road.
2: Yeah, I understand. Like, I my cousins grew up, and they would go with us a lot, or they primarily became deer hunters because of that same reason. Like, it was easier to do on their own, and you know, like so because their dad was a farmer and. Duck hunting was always difficult for that reason. So I know that you did some work on, well, obviously you did all this research on camps, but I know with Doug Lodermeyer's book, you helped him with research on, I think, carvers and like decoys as well. So are you a collector on top of being an historian?
1: Yes, and uh, I I sort of got into the collecting decoys when uh i i saw an advertisement one time in the middle of the winter for the annual decoy show that minnesota has in the twin cities and uh it was sort of like after hunting season it's it's sort of like well okay now what do i do until the next hunting season rolls around so i thought it'd be interesting to go to the show so i went there that that show was in february so i went there uh, because it was you know duck hunting related and uh it, it was kind of uh mind-blowing to see uh what they what they really had available there for decoys and such and so yeah i got into the decoy collecting i i, I have some birds i'm not a huge collector i i'm uh particularly interested in minnesota decoys and and uh uh i grew up in otter county so i have a particular interest in otter till county decoys but uh anything that's uh decoys that, uh, were made by carvers or came from camps in sort of his, historic hunting areas in Minnesota. Are, are uh, areas that I'm interested in. So, when was that first
2: show for you? How old were you then?
1: Oh, wow, that's a that's a good question. That's uh, oh, I'm sure it was 30 years ago, probably.
2: Okay, so it's changed a lot since then. So at the time when you started collecting, did you, were you just kind of in awe of everything, or did you know what you wanted to collect? Like, were you knew what your interest was?
1: I I made the mistake that I think most people make, and I just started collecting stuff. Right. And you know, if it, if it looked interesting, I was I was going to collect it. Partly because I it, I felt that unless I actually had it had one of those decoys and I could handle it regularly, I wouldn't get uh, knowledgeable enough to recognize, uh, you know, similar decoys and such. So that was part of the reason I, I just had sort of a general interest. So yeah, yeah, I was collecting things from all over the country and, um, you know, that's, that's the way it was. After a while, I sort of, I I guess, wised up a little bit. I, and decided, well, you know, I need to concentrate on this. So that's when I kind of narrowed it down to Minnesota decoys and, and, uh, if they had history behind them that was even better.
2: Yeah. Uh do you remember what your first decoy was?
1: Yeah, I bought a Mason a Mason painted eye mallard from a guy who happened to I bought it off of eBay and it he happened to live only about uh 3 miles from my house. <laughs> do you still have it? Uh I do still have it. I really like that decoy and uh I it was kind of interesting when I went over there to pick up the decoy uh, from that gentleman, he was a, a collector, and he had some really nice decoys. And all of a sudden, I'm handling a fifteen thousand dollar Mason decoy—not the one I bought,
2: <laughs> right? But
1: uh, I, in his collection, and it was sort of like, "Wow, this is uh, this is even more amazing than I thought."
2: Right. So, something that's common among collectors—that since I've talked to so many. After buying that decoy, did that form? Did you form a relationship with that collector, and did that influence you, or was it another collector down the road? Yeah, like, did you have any significant relationships to help you with collecting?
1: That particular first decoy that I bought didn't really have turn into a you know personal relationship or anything with that particular collector. Although I did run into him at shows and things, um, it was more so when I was at the show, at the different shows because I would go annually every time they had the show, you'd, you'd run into different um, uh, collectors and uh, folks that were selling their decoys and such. And when you're first learning, it was sort of, you know, kind of an opening experience. And you talk to a whole bunch of different people and uh, you know, certain folks just seem to um, you seem to connect with uh, even more so than the others. And so that's sort of where I've, I I think I got into um, kind of refining what I was interested in, and then along the way I I, I um, met up with Doug Lodermeyer, who's you know written the books on duck Minnesota duck decoys and duck calls, and uh, he he was extremely helpful in in uh, me sort of getting a, a handle on that. Um, I met with him when he was doing his first. First decoy book. I brought some decoys over and got to meet him and s- see what his book was looking like and so forth. Um, so, so that was a that was kind of a big uh, big influence.
2: Yeah, that's usually common I find with collectors, and it's also one of the like main pieces of advice people give to new collectors is forming those relationships um, and going to shows and meeting those people to kind of help them. Figure out where they want to go with their collection. That's so that's why I asked that. When did you turn? So you're starting to collect decoys and you're a waterfowl hunter. At what point do you turn and get interested in the duck camps of Minnesota?
1: That was sort of an accident. I I never had an intention uh, or thought I had an interest in writing a book, that's for sure. But actually, it was almost exactly seven years ago. I went to the National Decoy Show in Chicago. And uh, getting back to Doug Lordermeyer, he he was giving a presentation at that show on the history of Minnesota duck decoys. And I thought I always had always wanted to go to that show and never quite gotten around to it. And I thought that'd be a great, a great reason to go to the show and then uh, hear what Doug had to say. So in in his presentation, he mentioned that he was starting work on a on a new volume of uh, duck decoy books and duck call books. And in his uh, decoy books particularly, it, he's always had some history of duck hunting and duck hunting locations and so forth in there. And he mentioned that in the, the new book he was working on, he wanted to get uh, more history and more information on Lake Christina, which is uh, located in central Minnesota. It's you know one of the most historic duck hunting lakes in Minnesota, great, uh, historically a great uh, canvasback lake. And uh as I mentioned before, I grew up in Ottertill County and uh we still we have a cabin up in, in that area and uh I hunt hunt in uh Ottertill County area all fall. And so I'm driving by the Lake Christina area all the time. So I got together with Doug and I just mentioned uh if you ever need anybody to do some research on uh, on decoys from Lake Christina area or any kind of history let me know so anyway he took me up on that I started doing some research on some particular uh, carvers that were thought to be from the Lake Christina area and uh and that sort of evolved into some other research Doug asked me to do and while I was doing that uh the declay Carver uh, research i I kept running into information on old duck camps so, you know his history of camps on Christina. And then that expanded into some counties around that area. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. I But I just set the information aside, put it sort of in a binder or a folder. And uh, after, after a while, it got to be a, a, a real big pile of information. And I showed it to Doug Lodermeyer one day. And I said, boy, somebody should write a book on this. <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, why don't you do that? And, uh, <laughs> and I'll help you. I'll show you what you need to do. And helped help you along the way, and, and that was uh, that started seven years ago, and and uh, the last few months is when the book came out, and so it de- gradually evolved in, into that.
2: Yeah, you know, I find it interesting. There aren't a lot of books on duck camps, but I feel like in most decoy books, they're. Are mentions of camps, of famous camps, um, because either carvers, you know, either were guides for that camp and carved decoys for that camp, or the camp bought decoys from certain carvers. You know, they're always like a part of the story, but they're never, rarely are they the focus of the story, except for, I mean, there's a couple books here and there, but not um, to the extent that your book is. And the reason I find that surprising is because often um, it's one of the requests I get for the podcast is to talk more about old duck camps. People find it interesting, not necessarily collectors find it interesting, but waterfowlers find it interesting. And you would think there would be more work done on it, but there's not. Yeah, I just find that surprising that this is kind of one of the only ones. This is the biggest, the most extensive one I know of, right? Like,
1: <laughs> Certainly got to be one of the biggest. I never intended it to be that big, that's for sure, but it, yeah. it, it's big.
2: Yeah, I, I can think of like Dr. Wayne Kaputh does one that's not just on camps. It's on duck hunting and like around We Are. It's got, you know, a little bit of everything in it. And then I was trying to think there's a couple other that are on specific camps, but there's not. The just the volume of camps in this country that are still around that was surprising when I was going through your book of how many that are still in operation. How many do you do you even have a number on that? Like how many are still in operation in Minnesota?
1: Well, you know, we've got there's a lot of camps identified in the book, yes, and uh, about 400, I would say that over time that we've identified, right. there's about 400, and uh it uh, for the for the camps that are identified in the book or covered in the book 200 of those camps are still active wow um, you know there're certainly more camps than that that are active as i found out since the book came out a couple of months ago cuz people are calling me and telling me about camps i was not aware of right but one of and and one of the things i learned which which i thought was pretty interesting was how many really old camps are still active in minnesota um, there's there's over 50 active camps in Minnesota that are over 100 years old. That that really surprised me. I I hadn't expected that.
2: No, that is yeah, that is surprising because a lot of the times these camps that are that old are now you know a refuge or some sort of protected property. Uh, they usually aren't still operating as a camp. That's that's amazing.
1: Yep, you're, ex- you're exactly right about the refuge part. There's a lot of uh, Camps uh, that you know that are identified in the book and were were uh, e- eventually turned over. To, I mean, they were great hunting areas, obviously, and then over time, they, uh, the the refuge uh, sort of took over the took over the whole area, and so a lot of camps were lost that way.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because I mean, we just are looking at Minnesota, but I wonder, you know, there's lots of different states that had a very you know robust history of camps, right? all over. And I wonder what the survival rate is among states. like that. I I mean, we don't have an answer for that. But now that we bring that up, that 50 of them are over 100 years old, I wonder how that pans out across the country. Maybe someone listening can give us an answer. But (laughs) that's really interesting. I wonder if Minnesota tends to be higher. The one thing I do want to ask, though, before we get into specific camps, which I have questions about, I mean, the railroad was significant um, in a lot of states, waterfowling camps, like North, Car- North Carolina, you know. What well, do you think the railroad's influences on how the land was developed because of this? Do you think, like, areas stayed more rural because there was waterfowling there because of where the the railroad was coming in and bringing them in? Or did towns develop around that? Like, how do you think the railf- railroad industry, like, influenced the waterfowling in Minnesota and these camps?
1: well i I think in the early years it was a, a a huge influence because uh when the when the railroads would come in and they would come into an area that had good waterfowl hunting the the market hunters and the sport hunters would be there almost right away after the after the tracks were laid and the trains were coming through It was really really kind of amazing,
2: yeah, I wonder what that word of mouth was like who's the person telling them to come well you
1: know? yeah well um for as an example, there there is a there is a uh, club uh, in Minnesota called the Railroad Gun Club. Right, and uh, you know most of these camps they had a physical location. You know they had a duck pass or they had a, a a lake or a slough or property on a good hunting lake. The Railroad Gun Club didn't have any of that. They just they just hopped on the railroad and they had their own special car and they would go to where the good hunting was and then they would park the you know the railroad car and then they would. Go off and go off and hunt, and the the f- sort of founder or the main guy in that club was the uh, was the station agent in Minneapolis. So okay. you know, so they had that connection of the uh, you know all the, the the employees on the trains and the people tra- the passengers coming through, and so I think that sort of word of mouth, like you, you described, is probably how that would get started.
2: Yeah. That's a really interesting club. Yeah. And I didn't realize I've seen that picture, which we're a podcast, so it's hard to describe, but it's in the museum of that railroad car and it's probably, I don't know, a few hundred ducks in yeah, that
1: picture. It's, it's uh I believe it's six hundred and thirty-four. What? I didn't oh. know you
2: knew I didn't know anyone knew the answer to that. Yep. Six hundred and thirty-four.
1: Yep, I could I'll double check the number, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah, that did you, did you say it's in the museum? Are you referring to the museum in Memphis?
2: Yes, it's in the Market Hunting section on the timeline. Yep, that picture is on the wall. Yeah.
1: Yep, I think I saw it there. That's a that's a yeah. That picture has made its rounds. That was you know that was in New York papers way back in the eighteen eighties, and that's that's uh, that picture is taken in St. Paul.
2: Oh wow! Well, I'm glad I can tell visitors that there are six hundred and thirty four ducks in there. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a lot of ducks. And there's only probably like eight hunters in that picture
1: Uh, Probably yeah, probably about that number.
2: Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's such an interesting I didn't realize that that I always assumed that, you know, because the market hunters They would ship the ducks back on rail on the railroad to cities I just assumed that was that not the railroad gun club
1: No, that was the railroad gun club the because the picture uh, I was able to identify most of the the the, the members in that picture that, that were that were in the gun club. There's a few that I'm not positive in that picture, but uh, most of them we've we've got identified.
2: Oh wow! So how many members were of the railroad gun club? Was it like more conducive to have more members because it was you know something that went in and out,
1: or um, I think there was probably about probably around eight that were sort of steady members, and then it seemed like they had sort of a um, a variable number of additional uh, hunters that would sort of come and go over time okay so it wasn't a wasn't a real big club and, and maybe because um they were pretty much you know relegated to being in in one uh railroad car rather than having a you know a real big clubhouse somewhere
2: yeah, that's a really interesting one that's pretty unique to your area like, I haven't really I don't think I've heard of anyone having that as well but so in your book, you kind of like, I find the Minnesota area, because it's so different from where I hunt. I grew up hunting in Mississippi. There's all these sections, and they're all very, they can be very similar, or they can be all very different types of hunting in Minnesota of what you're hunting. Because the railroad came in, and then the, start, the camp started to develop at that point as the railroad came in, areas of Minnesota started to, where did the camps start to um, kind of, what were the hot spots of where camp started to develop?
1: Yeah, so... Minnesota became a state uh, in 1858 and uh, by 1861 uh, w- was the first uh, real duck hunting club that that we were able to identify and that was right in the twin cities you know Minneapolis St Paul metro area uh, because it was such it was you know really lightly populated at the beginning it was where the Mississippi River f- flows through and then just north of St Paul there was a uh, a location uh, actually on a uh, a stagecoach. It was a way station. It was a roadhouse called Van Ellsberg's. Uh, it was on the stagecoach that went from Minneapolis-St. Paul up to Duluth. And that was uh, right on the shore of a lake that had a, a was on a string of lakes that uh, were attached to to Rice Creek. And it was some fantastic hunting. And so even by 1861, the club was going. By 1862, there was a, uh, this way station. Van Ellsberg's was a was a destination where duck hunters would go for hunting. And uh, so so that was sort of the start, the metro area. And then as the trains would start to uh, go out through Minnesota, that was happening uh, mostly in the 1870s and into the 1880s. And so by 18, about 1876, um, there were actually records of, uh, we got pictures of uh, special railroad cars that, Uh, had hunters that came all the way from Massachusetts. And they were going, which, again, kind of surprised me. I didn't realize it would be that early. But they had special railroad cars were made up for hunters. You know, they had kitchens and game uh, lockers and kennels for their dogs and and so on. And uh, they were going through, you know, shortly after the tracks were laid, they were going through Minnesota into these areas and not only duck hunting, but, you know, hunting other game as well. And continuing out even into North Dakota, into Dakota Territory, um, and and then a little bit later in the 1880s, um, again the the railroads started emanating from the Twin Cities and going north and west and southwest, and as they went to new areas, if there was good duck hunting, um, you know, as we talked about, the the market hunters and the sport hunters would be there almost almost right away uh, in the 1880s. Um, the train was going uh, northwest out of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area up towards uh, where Fargo, North Dakota is these days, up to the Red River Valley. They were, you know, heading towards the Bonanza Farms, where the grain farms were for railroad traffic. But uh, they they went right by Lake Christina, which was a fantastic canvas back lake. And uh, in the 1880s, they had a uh, again East Coast hunters and hunters from like the Michigan area would come in these special hunting cars. And some of them were made by the Pullman uh, Sleeper Car Company. So they were pretty fancy, pretty fancy cars. And they were, again, modified uh, specifically for hunters. And they would have um, usually porters and cooks along with, you know, uh, providing uh, assistance for the hunters. And uh, again, that's in the 18, early 1880s. Right. And it
2: would... It would have to be, I mean, if you're coming from Massachusetts in 1880, you're paying a lot of money to get to Minnesota. And I would think you would not expect, you know, you'd expect it to be pretty nice at that point.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it, the the railroads had, had figured out even by that time that there was a market for this of customizing these railroad cars and then leasing them out or renting them out to these hunting groups, mostly, like you say, from the East Coast uh, where there was probably more money to, to be able to afford that, but they would come through and, and, uh, hunt in Minnesota and continue on into Dakota territory. And, uh, the Pullman, the Pullman cars were kind of particularly interesting because they actually had, they actually had names that the Pullman company gave them. The hunting car was called the the Davy Crockett. And that was a car that, uh, I ran into some information where years later, uh, this was in the 1880s when it was they were hunting on Lake Christina uh, years later uh, in the 1890s, I think it was down in South Carolina with uh, an, an ex-president of the United States. I can't remember which which one it was, but they obviously got a lot of mileage out of those those uh, specialized hunting cars.
2: So you have all of these you know more wealthy hunters and forming camps and duck clubs. but alongside that, as you mentioned, you have market hunters. And how was, how were they interacting at this time? And was market hunting kind of interfering with the camps or or not at all? Was it it just enough ducks that it didn't matter?
1: You know, it was another thing that was kind of interesting in reading um, a lot of old newspaper articles. Again, this happens to have been from the Lake Christina area. Early on, when the newspapers first were uh, being published in that area, Early 1880s, probably. Uh, they talk about they talked about even in 1882, I think it was that th- they were getting all these hunters from the East Coast, you know, from New New York State and Massachusetts. The interesting part was, you know, they they didn't come and stay for a weekend. Obviously, they were, some of them would stay for six weeks. But in, in those real early days, even then, the the writers or the publishers of those newspapers did not particularly like market hunters. <laughs> It I I I thought it would probably be uh, the case where it was sort of, you know, they could they could uh, coexist and not not be an issue, but it was uh, generally the case that it didn't take long before the market hunters uh, were not enthusiastically uh, looked upon by. The sport hunters,
2: yeah, they're right. That, I mean, it makes sense, I, and it's we've talked about it on here before because it comes up in Ducks Unlimited's history that you know when they were making policies and things like that to change towards a more conservation focused kind of to rein the market hunters back. You know, they weren't that concerned about the duck clubs and the camps because they were already implementing um, some forms of restraint and conservation. So the first policies kind of almost excluded them or or used them as an example to kind of form new ways of thinking. So, it, I mean, it makes sense because the clubs and camps were already pretty early on thinking along that way, along that more, I guess, conservation because they wanted to conserve what they had and they wanted to keep it, they wanted to keep the hunting good and they didn't want, you know, they didn't want any too much change with ducks coming in and things like that. Yeah. All right. I have a question about Marketize, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport.
2: Thanks for sticking with us. My question about market hunters pertains to, um, it was the Heron Lake, I think I read in yours, I love about the um, 1901 market hunters that were arrested. And they like, it was, I think it was one was charged, the leader was charged with $65 and the other one was charged with $35. And then the part that I was like, I was really curious about and I'm sure you don't have an answer. But four hundred and eighty decoys were taken and I really want to know what happened to the decoys. I'm sure we don't have an answer.
1: Boy, there's a whole bunch of people who would like to know what happened to those decoys. Those decoys probably ended up, you know, being used on Heron Lake for years. Because Heron Lake was you know, a lot of people would think Heron Lake was probably the the most historic duck hunting area in Minnesota. It's it's got a lot of uh there's a lot of famous hunting camps there there's there's so we talked about hunting camps that are over hundred years old. in Lake has got several of several of those. that's you know it's just tremendous history there. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what happened to those decoys. boy, if we could have a picture of them too, to see what which particular kinds of decoys they had, but we there's sort of a general style of heron Lake decoys, so we can sort of uh, speculate you know what what they did look like. But uh, here in Lake, here in Lake, had uh, they really had some uh, controversy, if that's the right word, or some uh, interference between the market hunters and the sport hunters? It was such a fantastic hunting spot in those early years that market hunters, you know, would come up from Iowa, and there were locals, and locals would get hired, and they had an ice house at the south end of the lake, you know, where they'd freeze the ducks, and then they'd send them out. Uh, a lot of times to Iowa, but other locations as well. And uh, it got to the point where the the market hunters uh, apparently would you know be intimidating sport hunters because they wanted exclusive uh, hunting and the the best spots and and you know it was it was a money maker for them obviously. So there got to be a lot of uh, issues with that. And then what seemed to happen was around 1900 1901 when you know the laws in minnesota were changing on uh, uh, bird hunting duck hunting and market hunting and there was a lot of interest then by some uh wealthy businessmen in the twin cities to have clubs uh, private clubs on here on lake once those uh wealthy folks got interested in it then any sort of interference by market hunters was really looked at in a different way because you know those hunt- those uh wealthy businessmen had you know, had some clout and and uh, weren't used to sort of uh, having to do business that way. So they they came in and uh, established several uh, private hunting clubs. And uh, then what was kind of interesting was uh, those locals that had been market hunters previous to that. They ended up uh, working as guides at these uh, private clubs, and and they were very successful doing that. And a lot of them did that for many years. And the other part that was kind of interesting was some of those market hunters on Heron Lake, some of them actually went on to become game wardens later on, which was really kind of interesting. That is
2: interesting. Well, I mean, I guess they know the land really well, so that's helpful. <laughs>
1: yep, that's correct. It just kind of have uh, kind of an interesting uh, sort of tidbit about how that all evolved.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Why do you think so many camps at Heron Lake have lasted for so long? Like, why is it one of the older, you know, what is it about that area that it's kind of stuck around?
1: Well, I think, uh, originally it was, uh, you know, just a fantastic hunting location. It was, and it, and it was, um, you know, those early hunting camps, at least in Minnesota, maybe, maybe it was common everywhere that their number one duck that they were really interested in was canvas backs. And, Heron Lake was a tremendous canvas back lake. Uh, There's reports that, uh, well, they called it the Chesapeake of the West at at one point because the reporting was that, you know, more birds staged on Heron Lake at one time than anywhere other than Chesapeake Bay. So that's why they gave it the name uh, Chesapeake of the West. But there were reports of uh, 700,000 cans on the lake, you know, back in the late 1800s and so that, that was the, the first attraction. What sort of helped that was there was a, a railroad that came right from the Twin Cities and went uh, within yards of the north end of Heron Lake. And uh, so there was a train depot right there. So it was very convenient for these uh, businessmen from the Twin Cities to go to that location. Tremendous hunting, uh, hunting of the, you know, their most desired bird canvasbacks. And uh, even the history of how that uh, train came to that uh, railroad came to be, uh, there's there's some write ups and descriptions saying that the original destination or where the path where that railroad was going to go was farther north than where it ended up. And the, the speculation is it was actually moved right to the edge of Heron Lake because the president of that railroad, uh, Elias Drake, was a was a well-known duck hunter in it, he owned property right around the lake and so there's speculation that the reason that uh railroad comes right along the edge of Heron Lake uh, had something to do with the tremendous hunting. So that's that's how it sort of got started. It was always a tremendous hunting lake and so these these camps were established and they were very in very early days they were into the conservation part of it. They uh, uh even in 1906 they had some rules and regulations that they published that you know you couldn't hunt after two o'clock on the lake, and they had rules about what time you could start, and uh, you know how you handled yourself when you're retrieving birds, and it was a gentleman's agreement uh, that everybody signed, and and uh, the guides and the these uh, camp owners, and it it's still it's still actually in effect today. It's kind of an amazing uh, early conservation agreement that was probably originated by. Uh, James Ford Bell, he was the, you know, the founder of General Mills and and, uh, he was a camp owner on on Heron Lake and, you know, obviously conservationist, he moved up uh, into Otter Till County later on and then eventually up into, you know, Delta Marsh.
2: Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So because of that, do you think with the early conservation, what is the hunting, I mean, I'm from Mississippi, so I don't know enough about it, but how has the hunting evolved and how are they still, what are they doing to still, I guess keep those camps alive I mean is it some of the similar families that own these camps have they just been passed down or so that's a lot of questions in one question but yeah so what is why have they survived in the way that they have I guess
1: yeah I think of I think uh, you know it is a tremendous it's, it's a it's a big it's a big lake it was a tremendous hunting location it's still a very good hunting location although I think you know the the folks that have hunted there for years will say, um and this is sort of a general situation i would say in most of minnesota is, you know the hunting isn't what it used to be
2: that's what everybody says everywhere steve
1: yeah yeah i understand and so so i think that's the case but it still it still can be a very good hunting location and to answer uh you know part of your question there too there is a lot of uh continuity of some of these camps that are on here and lake and this this is in other areas of the state too, but some of the areas on Heron Lake or these camps, um, they've still got some of the same families involved in these camps that were there uh, probably a hundred years ago. I, I know of other camps outside of Heron Lake that are in that situation as well. So I think there's there's you know there's the good hunting, but then there's also the uh, the history. Well, the history and the tradition of you know our our family was there and uh you know we sort of continue on with that same tradition
2: yeah so what's the oldest camp the
1: the oldest camp that's still active would be uh, on Heron Lake not surprisingly i guess um and that would be the Windsor farm which started uh in the 1870s sometime there's other camps that are close to that in in Ottertail county that's uh was started about 1881, and uh, that, and actually, that's the location where James Ford Bell moved to from Heron Lake when the Heron Lake hunting slowed down in the you know 1916-1920 timeframe. And uh, that camp had Bell family members in it for for a long time until maybe 20 or some years ago. And there's, but there's still uh, family from those early members, 19. 19- uh, probably a little after 1920, but some of those uh, f- uh, family members are still hunting that location. So there's there, there's several camps that go back, you know, 100, well, 140 years or so.
2: Wow. One of the other areas that, well, it was one part of that you mentioned, and uh, and I didn't think about it in regards to Minnesota, but there, you talk about Swan Lake, which i like you to describe a little bit about Swan Lake, but if we can do about how... I mean, these, some of these camps had to survive the Dust Bowl years where these lakes almost dried up. And I do not it's hard to think about, when you think about Minnesota and you think about the size of these lakes, it's hard to imagine them almost drying up, but that was the case. And, you know, they had to survive this time. Plus, you know, the war comes quickly after. So it's, it's amazing that some of these camps made it through these really hard years. But I'd like you to kind of describe that a little bit more um, if you could,
1: yeah. So Swan Lake again is one of the most historic uh, areas. You know, some people would say uh, Heron Lake, Swan Lake, and Lake Christina are, are uh, you know, maybe three of the most historic because there's been a lot written about them. But uh, Swan Lake, which is located about uh, 75 miles south of Minneapolis, Saint Paul, that's a that's a huge uh, lake. It's 12,000 acres, I think, and it's it's a big marsh. Uh, it has open water on it as well, but uh, it's a huge lake. And it, uh, even back in, let's see, about 1920s, there was about 100 duck camps. They they always referred to them on Swan Lake. They called them uh, shacks, hunting shacks. But there was 100 a, a hunting shacks on Swan Lake. Then, as you mentioned, you know, when you get to the drought years, what happens? Because Swan Lake was... Uh, you know, relatively shallow compared to some of the big lakes in in Minnesota. So there's a lot of pictures. There's some pictures in the book of what Swan Lake looked like in the Dust Bowl years. And, and, you know, they're pheasant hunting out in what used to be the duck hunting area in Swan Lake. And, you know, so it got almost all of it got totally overgrown with uh, vegetation and it was dried up and they were you know the farmers would go out there and they're you know planting potatoes and growing crops and i i interviewed a older gentleman uh, that had a uh, grew up on a farm along swan lake and he was describing in the in the drought years you know it was so dry they were they were always afraid of grass fires so there was a big there would be grass fires around swan lake while there was a big grass fire and the wind was such that it was coming towards their farmstead so his his uh, dad had to get out with a tractor to plow and plow a circle around the farmstead you know to get black dirt rather than have uh, all that dry grass in between uh, them and the, uh, the you know the oncoming fire and that that's something that was actually kind of common back then is they would get farm equipment out and try to isolate the farmsteads because uh, those those grass fires and prairie fi- fires in the in the drought years could be uh, Really destructive, so but you know in some cases uh, after the drought years in Swan Lake for example uh, other lakes as well you had all that vegetation growing and then when the water did come back there was actually some fantastic hunting in in years after that you know which isn't so unusual you know we see that in some of the other uh, hunting uh, sloughs and lakes and so forth around here where you get you get a drought here, and things dry out, and then the water comes back. It can be some great habitat,
2: right? I wonder. It makes me think. Okay, so you're you're dealing with all of that, um, the drought, and then just kind of like this lack of resources. You know, you're you, it's hard to find food, water, all the things, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, you have all this abundance. I wonder if that helps because of the scarcity. I wonder if the abundance then just revived it in its own self because people were so happy to have all these things that they had been missing for those those years, you know
1: yeah and and I know for an example in uh, in Swan Lake, um there were some of those hunting camps then that sat empty for several years, you know, just because you know there weren't any there wasn't any water, there weren't any ducks. and so uh, you know there's a there's, there's a story of uh, there's a gentleman named Pell Johnson who's written. You know four or five books on stories about Swan Lake it's some great hunting stories and his his own family's camp they had a they had a shack on Swan lake and uh when they came back you know four or five years later after the drought when it was gonna be hunting season again you know the the farmer that owned the land had been running sheep on that property and so they they, they had to clean out what the sheep had left inside the hunting cabin over those four or five years, so it was quite an adjustment, you know, when when the hunting did come back, but yeah, there was a period of time where essentially probably was no duck hunting, which is hard to imagine on a 12,000 acre lake.
2: Right, yeah. So, do you think the majority of the people who owned those shacks or camps came back to their camp or that it was abandoned, or do you think, or did some new hunters come into camps like that had been abandoned?
1: I believe uh, most of them probably came back, you know, because it wasn't, it was a few years, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a tremendously long time. So I, 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 think most of them probably came back and, you know, so they had some continuity there. Right.
2: Do they just mostly lease that property or were they technically owners of the property?
1: How does that work? Y- yeah. And it, it's interesting, different parts of the state, for example, it's, 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 um, uh, they sort of treated different ways. The Swan Lake area, historically in the early years, it seems like they would always lease the the property from the farmers, and uh, they they might build a hunting shack. Uh, you know, the hunters might build that, and that was their hunting shack. But they were typically leasing the property from the hunters. You know, Swan Lake is is really kind of unique in that it has, uh, you know, a lot of hunting lakes in Minnesota. There's a there's like a duck pass on a particular area of a lake or or there's a marsh that's a great hunting right from shore. Swan Lake is very, very little as far as uh, dryland duck passes. And so it's so big that everybody essentially gets out in a boat and goes and finds, you know, uh, their favorite spot or finds a good spot to set up decoys. So there's little communities there where there might be... Uh, 25 or 30 hunting cabins that are right next to each other you know 20 feet apart for example and so they have that little community of hunting shacks and then in, you know in the morning when they're going duck hunting everybody goes down to the dock gets in their duck boat and heads off uh, you know tries to beat their neighbor to their favorite hunting spot um and in those cases I know of at least 3 communities like that on Swan Lake where there's maybe 30 or so hunting cabins all together in all in all those cases, they were originally uh leasing from the farm owner. And in one case, I know they uh the group got together and made formed an association and bought from the from the farmer. In another case, uh, it's it's still after a hundred and some years, it's still the farmer that owns the land and and these um hunting cabins. And there's some really nice hunting cabins in there. Uh just lease the lease the property. So Uh, In general, in in that area, Swan Lake, it was uh, mostly leasing leasing property. Other parts of the state, it's totally different. Uh, These cabins uh, or hunters would come in. Sometimes they would lease from the farmer, and other times they would actually buy the land outright.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. They're like little communities. I've heard of it in like a smaller way, like a camp will build that way, but not to that scale of 30. That's... Very different.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, sort of unique to Swan Lake. I, I know of one other area that does that. Uh, you know, Lake Christina. We mentioned before they have they have one community of right. maybe twenty five, and the rest of the lake is is all sort of individually you know owned by different properties.
2: Okay, so let's talk since we kind of hit Heron Lake and Swan Lake, and we did Otter Tail County a bit. Let's talk a little bit about Lake Christina a little bit more and um, about what those camps were like. And how they evolved as well
1: so one of the er- earliest documented camps or, or hunting areas uh, was uh the palmquist farm and uh there was a the earliest documented again, there were probably market hunters before this gentleman, but the earliest really well documented uh market hunter was a man named Sam Ferdig, and he hunted out of the palmquist uh farm he he uh was hunting by eighteen eighty nine I'm sure there were market hunters there before that because the, the railroad came to Lake Christina uh, in late 1879. So by 1880, there's, there would have been uh, some market hunters and sport hunters there. But uh, 1889 was when uh, uh, Sam Fertig was there. He made his living essentially as a market hunter. He was from St. Paul. He'd come up to Lake Christina in the, in the fall and spend all— uh, Hunting months there and then go back at the end of the season. In fact, his um, he spent his honeymoon at the Palmquist farm. Apparently his after that uh initial trip with Sam to the uh Palmquist farm, his new wife didn't come back to that hunting to those hunting trips anymore after that. Yeah. But that was that was one of the, the first uh locations and uh the Palmquist farm, the, the, the railroad the railroad on Lake Christina is like Heron Lake in that It literally passes within yards of the uh, shore of Lake Christina. So James J. Hill was the founder of Great Northern Railroad. He was a duck hunter. You know, there's records of him coming up as as president of the railroad. He had his own private railroad car. Uh, There's records of him being at Lake Christina uh, in the nearby town of uh, Ashby with his private rail car and, you know, a lot of his uh, business associates hunting on Lake Christina. And, uh, the, the fact that the train went right by the shore of the lake, it was common practice for the, uh, engineers to blow the, the you know, there's, their steam engines had, uh, whistles. And so they would blow that as they went by, cause that would scare up ducks and which which was good for the hunter. <laughs> and then the other thing about the railroad being right by the shore of Lake Christina, uh, the market hunters, they would just flag down the train and, uh, you know, load their ducks onto it and send it down to Minneapolis and St. Paul. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so those were the starts. The, the start of that, 1889 uh, was a, a year that was the first duck camp that was identified on the lake. It was a camp called uh, the Interlochen Club, which was right next to the Was again, right on the railroad tracks there. And there was a, uh, some some of the other camps. There was a camp called Millionaire's Point, and uh that was that was started in uh about 1920 and that was the uh it, it's still a it's still an active duck camp and so that's that would be considered the longest continually active duck camp on Lake Christina so that's uh you know a little over 100 years old another one of those 100-year-old camps
2: yeah there's a lot of these 100-year-old camps all right I'm going to get to my last question, which I'm embarrassed to ask, but I have a couple of coworkers that would be mad at me if I didn't ask, but I'm just going to let you know it's not my question. I'm not a believer, but are any of them haunted? Are there any haunted stories?
1: If you, if, if a person believes that things can be haunted, that there would certainly have to be some haunted duck camps in Minnesota because... Uh, there's some interesting stories of things that happened at some of these camps, and so and they're so old that uh, I would I would I think if you're a believer, there's probably some haunted um, probably some haunted camps there.
2: All right, give me one. Give me one interesting story.
1: Boy, I, you know I'm, I'm I, I might be drawing a blank. I could come up with some interesting s- stories of uh, people in different places and different camps, but I'm not sure I can find one. Well, there's there's one uh, I was talking with a gentleman, uh, interviewing a gentleman a few years back. His grandfather was a caretaker at one of the camps. Again, this happens to be up in Ottertail County. They got a lot of lakes, so we got a lot of hunting camps. And uh, when when this gentleman was probably nine or ten years old, uh, he would, you know, his his grandfather would have him come out to the camp and help clean up. You know, clean up the pits and and, uh, the clubhouse and things like that. And normally, uh, his grandfather would have him come with him during the week when the hunters weren't there. Cause it was a big hunting camp. Uh, some hunters from the twin cities had it. Um, so then he thought it was kind of unusual when his, his granddad called him on a Saturday and said, I hey, come with me to the camp. We got to go over there and do some things. So he goes over there. So they walk into the camp and, uh, clubhouse and the It was in the afternoon, so all the hunters are sitting around a table playing cards or something like that. So they they walk up to the table, and uh, his his granddad says, "I want to introduce you to my grandson." And uh, the man whose back was turned to the boy as he walked up turned around to look at him, and it was uh, Matt Dillon from the Gunsmoke TV show. And if you have to be of a certain vintage to maybe even be familiar with that show, but Back in the 1960s, when when this ten-year-old uh, boy was watching TV, this was the biggest hero he had in his life, and so he was sort of in shock. But then uh, Matt Dillon, who was really James Arness, an actor from Minneapolis, uh, this gentleman uh, who was ten years old at the time. Said, "So uh, Matt Dillon stood up and stood up and stood up." Matt Dillon or James Arness was six foot seven. He was a big man and and he uh, he fit the exact mold of what this young guy thought uh, Matt Dillon should look like, you know, bigger than life. And so when when I talked to this uh, gentleman a few years back, he was probably 70 years old. You could tell even at that point it was still a big deal to have met Metron's famous uh, hero of his. So I thought that was just kind of an interesting story.
2: Well, all right. So we have have taken up a lot of your time. So... Um, but before we go, is there anything that you want to add that you want our listeners to know
1: about? You know, one camp we didn't talk about that might be of interest was a camp called the Rice Lake Syndicate. And, uh, oh, yes. Which actually got its start on Heron Lake. Uh, it was a camp that was started in 1906 on Heron Lake. And it had, uh, again, some uh, very prominent business at. Businessmen from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. And uh, most of them were uh, bankers or railroad presidents and things like that. Uh, I think we talked about uh, James J. Hill, you know, was founder of uh, Great Northern. His son, Louis Hill, took over for James J. Hill and was president of that railroad. He, again, had his own private rail car, which was great for hunting if you were a duck hunter. But uh, uh, when the hunting at parent Lake slowed down. They looked for other areas to hunt as well, and they moved up into the north central part of the state, up into Becker County, and in an uh, area called uh, Rice Lake was one of the lakes. And they they eventually controlled or owned uh, entire lakes um, in that area where they hunted. The Rice Lake Syndicate was probably the most um, reclusive or uh, under the radar group. That uh, a hunting group that Minnesota ever had, and it was made up of all these prominent, wealthy gentlemen. Uh, and Louis Hill was was one of them. And uh, Louis Hill, for example, like he had his own private rail car. And uh, as time went on, uh, or what was typical with Louis was, if he was going to go hunting, he would uh, like on a Thursday afternoon uh, contact his people and say, "I want you know, I want my my car." loaded up for four guests, and we're going to go hunting up in uh, Ottertail County, or we're going to North Dakota or wherever we're going, and hook it up to the correct train, and they would head up in that, to that location, and then he would park on a railroad siding somewhere, and then they, they'd hunt for the weekend or however long they wanted to, and then come back. And then in later years, he had a garage installed in the back of his private rail car so he could load his Packard automobile, into the rail car. So when he got to the destination, you know, they'd have transportation. And Louis Hill, I would say, was probably, you know, from the 1890s to 1940, he was probably the most well-traveled duck hunter in Minnesota because he would be on the, uh you say on the road, he was be on the rail a lot of time during hunting season, uh, hunting all over the state of Minnesota and into the Dakotas. So he was an avid hunter and he was, just an example of uh what the folks in this Rice Lake syndicate um were were like you know they had titanic they had a titanic survivor was in that was in that group uh, uh olympic gold medal winner was in that group the first airline airline pilot in uh, minnesota was in that group very very interesting but they're an example of uh this this very large hunting area they controlled up in Becker county the federal government came in to establish a refuge there in 1935, Tamarack uh, National Wildlife Refuge. In addition to the Rice Lake Syndicate, there were other prominent hunting groups in that area too. And obviously, they didn't want to give up those that great hunting they had up in that, in that area. So uh, those groups were able to hold off the federal government for about 30 years before they finally had to sell their properties to become part of the refuge. It's it's now a 35,000 acre uh, refuge, but it, w- it was just an, uh, another example of uh, some of these uh, hunting camps that, and I'm sure if that would have been taken over by a refuge, that would still be an ongoing hunting camp at Guam.
2: Yeah, I wonder if it would still operate the same way, like hopping around like
1: he did. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be a little different because obviously he had the advantage as, as did his Father and several of these other business and businessmen back in the day had their own private rail cars, and uh, they would do that. They would go to these, um, travel across these states and and go hunting and stop wherever they wanted to on a railroad siding and hunt for a while and then and then continue on. And uh, I've, I guess I've always thought if if a person, if you were a duck hunter and you could go back in time, if you're in Minnesota, I think uh, uh, going back into one of these. Groups that had these early railroad car connections, where you could go anywhere you want, um, as as soon as as soon as those areas became open to hunting, that would have been some pretty interesting times.
2: Oh yeah, and then they have the like benefit of. Finishing the hunt and you have this railroad car that's very comfortable That you just absolutely yep. hop be, right back on pretty good life well steve thank you so much for coming on this show this has been really great
1: thank you for having me it was great
2: steve's book is minnesota duck camps 160 years of history and tradition so please check it out if you want to know anything about minnesota duck camps this is the book Thank you, Steve, for coming on the show. Thank you, Chris Isaac, our producer. And thanks you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.dux.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport.